from Isaiah 53, 1 through 5. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Please be seated. We are in a series called Gospel Answers, and the purpose of this uh, series is, uh, is to really ask the question, does the gospel answer everything? Uh, my favorite passage in all of scripture comes from Romans 1, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. And the question that people could have is, is what did Paul mean by salvation? Is, is he talking about uh, our, our, our eternal salvation? Is he talking about just the salvation of our souls? Or is he talking about salvation of our very lives? Does the gospel actually save my life today? Does the gospel actually change things now? And so we, we posed this question, and uh, what would you have the gospel answer? And, and you responded, and, and what we found is that most of, of your questions really revolve around relationships. Um, so we spent a couple weeks looking at Christians in conflict. Uh, next week, we're going to look at uh, the, the Christian's relationship to government. Uh, the following week, we're going to be looking at the uh, adult child, uh, their relationship to their parent. Uh, what that looks like, and we'll close out this series at the end of November by looking at um, church leadership and the relationships that, that, that are affected by that, okay? But this morning, we are looking at uh, this issue of Christians and depression and the questions that come up from that. What we discover is that there's not one question that we have to begin with. We actually have to begin with quite a few. And sometimes in, in asking enough questions, you get to the point where you know what question you need to ask. And so we begin this morning with, with a few questions, now, I'm going to, uh, to tackle the first three of these directly, um, right off the bat, and then um, we'll, we'll look at the, the other ones indirectly over the course of, of the message. So hopefully when you leave here today, these questions are answered, but more than that, you know the, the, the gospel response to them. And so the question to begin with is this, why are we having this discussion? Why are we having this discussion? Uh, the second question we're going to dive into here in a second is, is a depressed Christian an oxymoron? Can Christians be depressed? Uh, thirdly, what is the cause or causes of depression? All right, so we're going to tackle those directly uh, here in a moment, but I'm going to stop. I'm going to pray for our time together um, before we go any further. Heavenly Father, we desperately need you. You are the answer to what we're dealing with. You always have been. And we have turned everywhere else but to you. And the result has not been good. Holy God, we need you. Holy Spirit, I pray now that you uh, would begin to move and work in people's hearts, that you would remind people of the truth of your presence, and that you would whisper in their ear that you are here. Because more than anything, we need to be reminded that we're not alone. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So why are we having this discussion? Um, well, frankly, it's because we need to have it. Uh, we, we need to have this discussion, and I'm willing to bet that there's probably a lot of you saying, why haven't we had this discussion before? Why haven't we been talking about these sort of things before? We need to have this discussion because the reality is, is that when it comes to anxiety and depression and mental illness, it, 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 is, it is out there. It is everywhere. It is all around us. Um, at the beginning of 2020, Greene County, uh, the county which we reside in, uh, put its uh, community health assessment together for 2020. And it, that all the information that they gathered was before November of, of 2019. But they looked at, at all of health in Greene County, physical health and mental health. And, and, and when it came to mental health, this is what uh, they found. 18% of adults in Greene County reported having a depressive disorder, including depression, major depression, uh, dysthymia, that's persistent depression, or minor depression. Nearly one out of every five adults in this county is directly affected or is related to depression, right? It's everywhere. Now that, as I said, that came before November of 2019, before COVID. Since then, things have only been exacerbated. Only been exacerbated. Uh, there was a, an article in the Baltimore Sun by a, a therapist named Carrie Malowista in, uh, in, in writing about the increase of mental health problems. She said this in uh, January of this year. Whenever a hurricane nears our shores, the government implements a system to track the disaster, including assigning a score or a scale of one to five to assess its severity and to guide disaster preparedness efforts. A storm with a magnitude of three or higher has the potential for devastating damage and loss of life. No such scale exists to warn us of the psychological dangers of our current crisis. As a psychotherapist, I have witnessed firsthand the anxiety, fear, and depression that have resulted. A Category 4 mental health storm of incalculable proportions has reached landfall across our nation, and a Level 5 disaster may make landfall this winter. None of us are immune, nor are we adequately prepared for this unprecedented emergency. The last 20 months have brought about an exacerbation in the mental health of Americans. In the article, she points out that the, the generation that's most at risk is Generation Z. Generation Z is those who are in uh, ages 9 to 24 currently. That's 68 million American people. And the reason that she says that the most at risk in, in, in all of this is that though they, they have the, 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 the greatest chance of survival, that physically they're strong, stronger in their, their physical immune system, she says their mental health immune system is not as robust as adults yet. Because of that, we'll see a significant increase and mental health issues of anxiety and depression within this generation. She goes on and she talks about social distancing and masks exacerbate psychological trauma. Loneliness weakens the immune system and social isolation increases the risk of premature death. But to be honest, I'm not telling you this morning that masks and social distancing don't have a physical benefit. What I'm saying is, is that on the other side of that coin, there's a psychological consequence. And it's real. Why are we having this discussion? We're having it because we need to have it. Uh, is a depressed Christian an oxymoron? The second question. Is a depressed Christian, in other words, can a Christian have depression? Maybe the best way to, to answer this is, is through an analogy. What if a Christian friend came up to you and they said, I've just been diagnosed with cancer? 
Would you turn to that friend and say, that's impossible. You're a Christian. And Christians don't get cancer. Would you say that? Or, or would you say, well, it's okay they got cancer, but Christians don't die from cancer. Would you say that? Your friend comes to you and says, I, I've just been diagnosed with, with cancer. Would you say, um, well, you must have a sin issue. There must be some unresolved, unrepentant sin in your life, and God is, is giving you this disease in order to confront your sin and get you to repent. That's the, the typical religious re, you know, approach. Uh, Jesus, with his disciples, um, they encounter a man who was born blind, and his disciples say to him, well, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, no, it wasn't his direct sin that caused this. This, this has happened so that God could be glorified through it. So, so would you say to your friend with cancer, you have cancer because you have un, unresolved sin? Would you say that? Or, or when they sought help, when they went to the oncologist, when they, when they went in for chemotherapy or radiation tr- treatments, would you say to them, wow, that's faithless. What an act of unbelief for you to turn toward human medicine to solve this. Like, where's your faith in Jesus? You should be praying more. Would you say that to them? I don't think that you would. And yet, when we, we look at this, on, on the flip side of the coin, we start talking about mental illness, we talk about anxiety and depression, that has often been the case with Christians. Christians who are struggling with this, we've turned to them and say, well, you can't struggle with this. You have the joy of the Lord in you. Those things can't coexist. No way you can be a Christian and struggle with depression, or at least not long-term depression. You'll get through it. You'll get over it. You just... We wouldn't, we, we, we've turned to people and we've said, well, this must be the result of sin. If you're struggling with anxiety or, or, or depression, it must be the result of sin. Or when, when we find out that they've gone to a therapist or they're on anti-anxiety uh, medication or antidepressants, we say, well, that's faithless. You should be praying more. We've actually done this. It's the reality that people have found in Christian, and we need to address this. Christians in suicide. We need to talk about it. I know three Christian leaders in the last two years that have taken their own lives. I knew one of them personally, and I know beyond a shadow of doubt he loved Jesus. We need to talk about it. And and the thing is, is we've made suicide like the unpardonable sin. That if if a Christian should take their own life, then, then either they were not saved to begin with, or they lost their salvation in the act. We've taught that. Suicides don't go to heaven. And that's been the tool that we've used to prevent Christians from committing suicide, right? The, the fear of hell. You know what a better preventative is? Talking about it. Dealing with it. Allowing Christians to deal with the pain that they're going through with other Christians who aren't going to condemn them and judge them and accuse them of all sorts of things. For those Christian leaders, I wonder what difference it could have made because of their, their position in leadership. They felt like they couldn't talk to people. What, what difference could it have made if they had somebody they could talk to? No. Depressed Christian is not an oxymoron. It's a real thing. And we need to talk about it. Third, let's talk about some of the causes. This is by no means uh, an exhaustive list. But to get the conversation rolling, I think that there's, there's at least four to mention. The first is grief. Grief, you, you, you encounter severe loss. 
And, and that might be the death of a loved one. You know, a mother that loses her child. Severe grief could lead to very long-term depression and, and hardship. But it doesn't have to be a loved one. It could be something like a job. The, the reality is, and, and Malawista pointed to this, that there's this, this hurricane coming, this, this, this level five uh, mental illness thing that could bear down on us. In terms of job loss, it, it might be in the hundreds of thousands over the next coming, coming months because of mandates. That might happen. And, and with job loss comes economic hardship. Economic hardship is grief, it's loss, and people will experience anxiety and depression, increasingly so. It's real. A third cause, physiological. Your body can get cancer but your mind can also fail to absorb serotonin. Your brain can, 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 can also fail in some ways. It can be a physiological problem that you experience. There are physiological causes to this as well. Last one to talk about, again, not an exhaustive list, environment, um, environmental factors. I, uh, I, I spent about the last 10 years or so in the Pacific Northwest, and then I moved here, and I've spent three winters in Ohio, and along come January, and the Ohio Dome sets in, and the sky is gray, and the trees are gray, and the ground is gray. Like in the Pacific Northwest, there was at least green trees. You don't have a lot of evergreens here. We don't have a lot of evergreens. This is my home now. <laughs> We're in it together. But environmental factors, like I, I have to have a light on my desk that shines on my face so I can concentrate. Otherwise, all I want to do all winter long is sleep. There are environmental factors at work. Now, what I want to point out this morning is that those are real causes, but there's a cause beneath the cause. There's an original cause. I want to talk about that. And the cause really is isolation. It's isolation. And so the question that I want to narrow all this down to is what is the gospel response to isolation? What is the gospel response to isolation? So if you will, turn with me over to Genesis chapter 1. Look at verses 26 to 31 together. As, um, as an introduction into this passage, I just want to remind you how crucial the doctrine of the Trinity is. And I know that you may not be able to wrap your mind around the fact that one being is three persons. You may not understand it, but that doesn't change who God is. Okay? And that reality, it affects so much about your own identity. The doctrine of the Trinity really matters. And we see this in this passage. So uh, read with me, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And in creation, at the very beginning, we see that we are relational beings created in the image of a relational God. Now, people tend to believe that God created humanity because he was lonely. That's not the case. God is not insufficient in any way. God did not create humanity because there was some sort of relational need that was going not being met. Within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit are complete in their relationship. They don't need us. He does not need us. We are made in the image of a relational God, but we are relational beings. Um, look at verse uh, 31. It said, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. 
It's very good. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was uh, uh, with a friend, and uh, he asked me, Justin, how are you doing? And I said, good. He's like, what do you mean by that? He's always good at asking the hard questions. What do you mean by that? Well, honestly, I'm not great, but I could be worse. Right? Don't want to complain, but yeah, things could be better. And so he's really saying, well, you mean adequate then. When you say good, you mean adequate. That's about right. Adequate, right? I think that's how we view this word good a lot, right? It's not lousy. It's not great. It's adequate. When Genesis 1 uses the word good, that's not what they're talking about. Uh, Genesis 1 is talking about something that is perfect and complete and whole. It's a designer who has designed something to function so perfect that, that this thing, it works exactly as it was made to work. It, it's good in that there's nothing wrong with it. There's, there's no blemish with it. There's not a single flaw. It's absolutely perfect in function. When Genesis 1 says that God looked at it, saw that what he made was good, that's what it means. And so when God sees Adam, right, here's Adam, and he, he creates Adam, and Adam's good. But look at this, chapter 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So Adam, is, he's good, right? Genesis 2 tells us that God created Adam out of the dust of the ground and then breathed life in him. And here he is at the center of this good creation, this good thing. But there's something about this situation that's not good. What's not good? Isolation. He's alone. That's what's not good. It's not good that he's alone. That is a profound statement for humanity. So here we are in creation at the beginning, relational beings created good, created perfect and whole because of the relationship God has provided for us. But we're relational beings created in the image of a relational God. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's intended to be. That's not the way it is, though, is it? So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. In the fall, we see that our sin leads to isolation from God and from one another. We discover something that is good that becomes not good. The enemy takes the form of a serpent and he, he comes to our first parents in the garden and he goes to Eve. Notice that he doesn't talk to Adam and Adam doesn't talk to it. He goes to Eve, and he convinces Eve to believe the lie. God is not good. He's not good. And, and what he's done is not good. The right thing to do in response to him is reject him. Become your own God. Reach out, take this fruit, disobey him, disconnect from him. Become your own God. Well, she does. She gives the fruit to Adam. He does as well. Their eyes are opened. And guess what? They're naked and full of shame. This went horribly, horribly wrong. And so they hide. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, we read this. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This, this is the cry of brokenness and fallenness. This is the state of humanity. This, this is the picture of humanity in its shame, hiding in the dark. And the God of the universe that made it is crying, Where are you? Do you notice that first, God cares where we are. He knows. Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You see the isolation beginning because of the broken relationship that now exists between God and humanity. Broken relationship. And, and we see that this, this fracturing, this splintering, it, it, it's, it's man pointing at God and blaming him. The woman you gave me. And pointing at the woman. She did it. And the serpent, or the woman pointing to the serpent saying, it's his fault. Isolation happens as the relationships begin to fall apart and break apart and splinter. goes on in, in verse 19, it says, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In other words, death enters the picture. Death becomes a part of the story. Sin enters in, death enters in, and, and humanity and now will exist in this state of fallenness and brokenness until something is done. And then in verse 22, it says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here's what happens. The relationship is broken. Isolation ensues. Humanity is forced out of the garden. And God stations an angel to guard the way back, a cherubim angel with a flaming sword to prevent two things, prevent humanity from trying to get back to God because God is holy, and to prevent humanity from reaching out and taking a hold of eternal life. For those of you who might be struggling with depression, I want you to imagine this. Imagine yourself at, at your worst moment. Imagine that, that feeling as it settles in on over you like a heavy cloud. That moment when you're curled up in your bed and you're unable to move or unable to function. Now I want you to imagine for a second that that will be your state for eternity. Could you imagine living in a state of such brokenness and sadness for eternity? It is God's grace that he prevented us from reaching out our hands and taking hold of eternal life in this state of brokenness. God's grace. And we're going to see this cherubim again here in a moment. But at the fall, our sin cuts us off from the Trinitarian God. From a relational being, we're made to be in the image of. The fall creates this isolation. We look back and we see this moment in the garden as the start of it all, the root of it all. The world around us knows there's a problem too. And our culture may not look at, at the, what happened in the garden as the cause of all this, but our world does understand that there is a problem. And that isolation, it is the problem. And we disagree about where it comes from, but we agree that isolation is the problem. Uh, there's a book uh, that I've mentioned before. It's called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. He was a, a war correspondent and wrote this book um, that has to deal a lot with community. And he talks about depression at length, but he writes this. First, agriculture, then industry, fundamentally changed two things about the human experience. The accumulation of personal property allowed people to make more and more individualistic choices about their lives, and those choices unavoidably diminished group efforts toward a common goal. In a society modernized, people found themselves able to live independently from any communal group, 
A person living in a modern city or suburb can, for the first time in history, go through an entire day or an entire life mostly encountering strangers. They can be surrounded by others and yet feel deeply and dangerously alone. Our world recognizes this problem of isolation. Younger would point at the agricultural or industrial revolutions as the problem. We see it in the garden. But there's a problem. He goes on and says this, the evidence that this is hard on us is overwhelming. Numerous cross-cultural studies have shown that modern society, despite its nearly miraculous advances in medicine, science, and technology, is afflicted with some of the highest rates of depression, schizophrenia, poor health, anxiety, and chronic loneliness in human history. As affluence and urbanization arise in a society, depression tends to go up rather than down. Rather than buffering people from the clinical depression, increased wealth in a society seems to foster it. What he is saying is that as an individual grows in wealth, their need for community around them lessens. And as you need others less, you grow in your individuality and your self-sufficiency. And as your self-sufficiency and individuality grows, so does your isolation. And from isolation comes mental illness, anxiety, depression. It's a side effect of isolation. Th these words, uh, you be you, they might be the most destructive thing we've ever seen. As we encourage one another to follow your passions and, and go and be individuals and go and pursue, the, the, the more we encourage autonomy and individualism, the more we are encouraging isolation and loneliness and despair. It is not good to be alone. It is not good. The fall is the demonstration of that. Our sin created our isolation from God and from one another, and the issue is broken communion. Communion is a key word this morning. In creation, we had communion the way it was supposed to be. Communion with God, communion with one another. In the fall, that communion is broken. So what happens then? What's the way out? But God. As Isaiah wrote, God in Christ's incarnation bore our sorrows and our grief. God took on flesh. The Son came. And he understood isolation. Yes, being fully God, he did not lose that, that fellowship and communion with the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit until the end. He had that relationship with God. But being fully human... One of the Gospels tells us that he would not entrust himself to any man. Like, only, even though his own family didn't get him. His own family didn't understand him. His closest followers didn't really understand what he was about or what he was going to do. Nobody, he, he lived in this state of isolation and, and, and loneliness, day in and day out. Nobody else on the planet could identify with him or he with them. A state of isolation and loneliness. Isaiah said, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. You should have the elements of communion with you. Would you take them out? You will take hold of the bread. The night before Jesus was killed, he was in an upper room with his disciples, and he takes bread, and he rips it apart and he hands it out 
to his disciples. And he says to them, this is my body given for you. It's the bread of the presence. This is my body given for you. I've been sent to you. I've been sent for you. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you, he would go on to say. This is a symbol of the presence that we are meant to have. As you ponder this, I want you to think for a second. Take you back to that garden. From that, that upper room, they go to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane and he tells his disciples, watch with me, pray with me. And he goes a distance away and he begins to pour his heart out to God the Father. And he comes back and he finds them asleep. And he says, you could not watch with me one hour. Do you hear the isolation and loneliness in his voice? For one hour. For those of you who are struggling with depression, your feelings tell you you're alone. But in Christ, you're not. He has not left you. He has not forsaken you. This is a symbol of the presence of God with you. And what would it be like for you to have one hour acknowledging that presence with you? For those of you who would look around and you would say, I, I know of people who are struggling. What would it mean for that person if you would spend that hour what would it mean for them if you would go to them and not try to advise them and not, 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 not try to cheer them up, but just to grab their hand and hold on to it and be silent with them for an hour? What would that mean for them? Jesus has given us his presence. Can we give our presence to another? If you by faith would acknowledge that he is with you, that he has given himself for you. Take and eat. Here from Isaiah, again, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He took the cup. And he said, this is a symbol of the new covenant that comes because of my blood poured out. There's a new relationship that you can have with God the Father because of my death. There's a new relationship you can have. You see, when Jesus goes to the cross, the exchange is made. He gives you his righteousness, but he takes your sin. He absolves your sin, and there at the cross, the wrath of God comes down on him for your sin and for my sin. He is pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our inequities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The great exchange is made. And in the most isolated statement ever made, we hear Jesus from the cross 
as the father turns away from him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you understand that nobody has felt the isolation that Jesus has felt in that moment? He understands that isolation. But do you know what happens in that moment? Remember the cherubim? The angel that God put at the entrance of the Garden of Eden to bar the way back to his presence? To bar the way from eternal life? Cherubim was embroidered on the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the outer temple. This curtain separated the place where the presence of God dwelt from the rest of humanity. And at Christ's death, that curtain was ripped from top to bottom. The wall came down. The division came down. The barrier between us and God came down. It was the end of our isolation in that moment. A new covenant, a new relationship that comes about because his blood poured out for us. If you by faith would acknowledge his blood was poured out for you, his body pierced for you. That because of what this symbol means, you have an end to your isolation. If so, by faith, take and drink. God in Christ's incarnation bore our sorrows and grief so that our communion with him and one another is redeemed. The last thing the gospel teaches us in response to depression is that we have a hope. We have a hope. A hope that is imperishable and unfading, says one New Testament author. We have hope. Now I want to be clear about something. Just as a Christian, a person or a man or woman can can experience the gospel, they can experience redemption, they can experience forgiveness of sin and still have cancer or even die from it, so a Christian, someone who's experienced the redemptive work of Christ, can still struggle with depression and maybe even long term. The restoration hasn't happened yet, but it will. And that's the hope that we have. And there are two things that help us with this hope, to know this hope is real, to know this hope is unfading and imperishable. The first is the Holy Spirit. The Son of God dies, but he rises from the dead and he ascends to heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us. Do you know that you are never alone? You are never alone. There is no place you can go to get alone. You are not in isolation in any way from God anymore because of the Holy Spirit. But the second thing he does is he gives us the church. He gives us a community of believers that are meant to come around us and remind us of the truth of the gospel. This is hope that we have here and now, but we also have a hope for the future. My second favorite passage of scripture, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, one through five. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Do you have hope? Do you have hope in that? This is good news. And the reality is, is there's a world around us that doesn't have it. The Christian, no, you're not automatically healed from everything. But you have something the world doesn't have, and that is hope. And this is the gospel response to isolation and depression. The question that we go on to ask is, what do we do with it? In light of this gospel, how then do we get to live? Simple answer is mission. We get to be on mission. And, and some of you may be like, I don't, I don't understand. We always ask the four questions. Who is God? He is a, a relational being. The Trinity is a relational being. This is who God is. This is what God is. What has he done? He has sent his son to come and go to the cross on our behalf to take care of our sin, to take care of our isolation. He has sent him to come that we might be adopted into the family of God. We might know that. This becomes our identity. Our identity is as a people in communion with God and with one another. This is our identity. But we should do something with that. How do we get to live if that's true? How do we get to live if that's true? Uh, Galatians 3, 27 through 29 says this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Here's what Paul is saying. Your isolation is over because all the things that divided you, your gender, your race, your economic class, all of those things that divided you are now gone. That makes you all one in Jesus Christ. Isolation no more. But then he talks about this. He says that you become Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The promise was this, that God told Abraham that through him, the whole world would be blessed. Through his offspring. And it was, first, it was Jesus. Jesus comes to do away with our isolation. But then he sends us through the Great Commission out to the world that what he's done for us, we would do out there. The whole world is blessed when we go. The Great Commission is the grace of God to the world. Yesterday I was at a stoplight and um, I was waiting for it to turn green and I, I looked across the street where there was a parking lot and I saw a man stumbling along. And then I saw him trip and fall and I saw the way that he fell, he was in bad shape. Uh, the light changed, I went, uh, I drove over to where he was. Somebody else saw it too, she came over. And on the ground was this man, his, his, his pants were halfway down, there was bleeding all over his face, his hands were full of blood, and I could tell right away he was very, very inebriated. I, I haven't seen anybody that drunk who was cautious, conscience before. He was very, very drunk. I asked him if he wanted an ambulance, he said he was, he was right next to, to, to his apartment. He said he just needed help off the ground. He could not get himself off the ground. you think about that. Someone who can't even get themselves up off the ground. This is a man who is struggling in desperate isolation because of the fall. And everything that he's turned to cope with that isolation has only led to further isolation. This is a picture of severe loneliness. 
severe sadness. Look, the hope that you and I have, it shouldn't stay in us. We're not meant to be reservoirs of the truth. We're meant to be rivers of it. It should flow through us. The world needs this hope that we have. And I'm not saying that, 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 that automatically being a Christian means all your problems are solved. What I'm saying is, is that God can solve those problems as you walk alongside people who need help too. The Great Commission is, is grace to the world, but do you know the Great, the great Commission is, is grace to us? It's grace to us. Because you know what the Great Commission does? It unifies us with a purpose. We are people who under a unified purpose, under a unified God, get to get outside of ourselves. The Great Commission causes us to take our attention off of me and put it on something that God is doing in the world. It causes us to stop being individuals. It causes us to embrace the community at large. It causes us to live for something. We'll close with this. This is the advice of a, a well-renowned psychiatrist called Lucy von Pelt. In one session, dealing with a depressed individual, she gave this advice. You need involvement. You know, the Great Commission, it's a lot more complicated than directing the Christmas play. But the reality is, is when we understand what our identity that comes from Christ is, and we begin to live that out, we begin to live with that purpose, and we get to see the grace of God going forward to the world, we also experience the grace in God in us. I Isaiah began that, that statement in, in verse or chapter 53 with, who has believed what he has heard from us? That presupposes that people have heard something from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's been revealed to us. We're going to reveal it to others. The gospel is the answer to isolation. Isolation, that's a disease. Communion with God is the cure. But communion with God, it requires us to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the love that you have constantly shown to us. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning, may they hear the Spirit call out to them, where are you? If there's someone here this morning who does not have a communion with you, they do not have a relationship with you, they are living in isolation apart from you, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit they would hear the words, where are you? God is calling to you this morning. Respond to it. Come in out of your isolation. Lord Jesus, you went to the cross knowing what it would mean. And there you experienced a greater depth of isolation than any one of us could understand. But you did it because you loved us and because you wanted to glorify your Father. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would enable us to recognize your presence in our lives. I pray that 
you would enable us to preach to our own hearts when we feel that we're alone, that we can remind ourselves of this gospel, that we are not alone, and that you would give us the eyes to see the people around us who are feeling that. Give us the eyes to see the people who are lowly and need us to sit with them for an hour or more. Lord Jesus, thank you. Holy Trinity, thank you. Amen.